And uh, please uh, find, hopefully inside your service sheets is a white sheet, a double-sided white sheet and on one side of that is the uh, heading Romans chapter 5, 6 to 11 which is the reading uh, from the Bible that uh, Beryl read for us earlier and it's worth having that with you because uh, that is the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, together. If uh, you didn't catch my name earlier, my name is Andrew and I'm one of the vicars here and I, I guess I'm not sure what you expect is going to happen over the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, You might have all sorts of ideas of what you hope might happen or what you hope might not happen uh, over the next 20 minutes or so, but here's what is going to happen over the next 20 minutes. And that is that we're going to open the Bible together and when we do, God is going to speak. Uh, And basically what I'm going to try and do over this period is get out of the way as much as possible so that you can hear God speak because when he speaks, unlike me and unlike uh, the rest of us, he speaks powerful words, words that I know can change our lives forever. And so that's what's going to happen over the next 20 minutes or so. We're going to hear him speak. And uh, just to give you the heads up uh, for this uh, little bit of time that we're going to hear him speak together, he is going to speak tonight to powerless people. Uh, So I'm not sure if you put yourself in that category, whether you are a powerless person Uh, but that's who he's aiming to speak to tonight. So I'm going to pray because that's really important uh, that we do uh, let God speak to us now. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us with that. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you speak to us as we have just sung, uh, that you are a God who doesn't uh, stand silent, uh, but you speak very clearly about yourself, about your world and about us. And we pray that you will do that tonight, that you will speak powerful words to us, uh, powerful words to powerless people. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've no doubt heard the words before, your train has been cancelled due to circumstances beyond our control. The price of fuel has spiked due to circumstances beyond our control. The store will be closed for the next week or so due to circumstances beyond our control and on and on it goes. The question, which circumstances in our lives are not beyond our control. I mean, isn't that the very nature of the circumstances that we find ourselves surrounded by, whether they be favourable or unfavourable circumstances, that they are beyond our control? We've seen it recently in the global scale with the global financial crisis that Rich Dunning has already spoken about, a crisis that reminds us just how little is within our grasp, how many things are beyond our control, the greed of others, the lack of demand for our skills or our resources, even the fragility of the whole economic system we operate in, all of these things are beyond our control. They just sort of happen. And it's not just a global scale, is it? We've seen that already with Rich tonight. We see how it affects the nitty-gritty, the personal details. And I imagine Rich is not alone here tonight. Uh, Many, uh, perhaps even students who have uh, gone through all the right processes, done all the right things, jumped through all the right hoops, done the degree, have the experience and yet there's still a very real chance that you'll be left without a job at the end of it uh, with a growing debt and nothing much to show for it, all due to circumstances beyond your control. And I suspect if we're honest tonight, nothing in human history actually encourages the thought that either on the grand scale of of the global system or even on the small scale of our lives that anything that is really important in life is actually under our control. That the idea of getting my life under control, as we, we like to talk about, is ever 
our realistic ambition. We live in a a world and a culture where this yearning for control has almost become a a modern madness. Uh, We we feel increasingly destabilised and uncertain by all sorts of things around us, both the big and the small, finding ourselves searching for something that's going to give us more security, more stability in life. And so it shouldn't surprise us if life sometimes, or perhaps all too often, feels like being stuck on some sort of high-speed motorway where we're racing along and almost swept along by all the things that are happening, always reacting to circumstances rather than making the decisions ourselves, desperate for sort of around the bend there to be a slipway or, or as we call it in Australia, an off-ramp that's going to lead somewhere where it will be like that. It won't just lead to more instability, it will lead to somewhere where things look familiar, where things start to make sense, an off-ramp that leads to where we are meant to be at last. That's what we crave We crave stability, but it's not our experience, is it? Uh, Virtually no day of our life feels like that. We are forever shaped by circumstances beyond our control. Now, when you start to live uh, that sort of experience, uh, there's different ways people respond. Many of us respond with positive action, refusing to be victims of circumstances. I'm I'm going to make changes here. I'm going to take control, no matter how small they are. I can't change the global environment but I can clean up the park. I I can buy the hybrid car. And others of us are even more stubborn than that, refusing to allow any aspect of our lives to be controlled. And so we start to worship at the cult of perfectionism. That if I could just get to some sort of standard in my life, in all the different areas of my life, then life would be in control. The cult of perfectionism, a cult built on the idea that however beautiful things are in my life, however affluent I am, however contented I may be, however happy, there's always something even better that I can almost reach out and touch. We get to think that if I could just get to that point, some sort of gold standard of happiness and excellence in all the parts of my life, from romance to sport, from finance to family, all these different areas, if I could just get things in order there, then my life would be in control. And so we end up focusing on the minutiae of our lives. We obsess about our body shape or our fitness or our teeth or our wrinkles or our clothes or entertainment, whatever it might be, some small detail that if I'll I'll just start there, I'll get that in control and I'll work up from there. Well, some of us throw ourselves into renovations and we rack up sort of record levels of debt as we've done recently, sort of playing credit card shuffle, hoping that this sort of materialism will, will somehow act as an airbag on this motorway that we're on, protecting us from all these circumstances around us. And yet in the end, all these attempts to reclaim our control prove self-defeating. It proves that way if it's based on the premise that whether on the large or the small scale I can actually ever get to that point. Sure, I can control the colour of the bathroom tiles in my house or or have the perfect diary or the perfect plan for the year ahead. But if I think that means I'm taking control of my life or I'm getting things in order, then I'm caught in a dangerous spiral of escapism and I suspect that is many of us. When we live in a world like this, it's hard not to feel anxious. It's hard not to feel unsure, perhaps even frustrated that we don't know what is coming round the bend. Have you ever felt like that? 
I suspect most days most of us feel like that. And when I was thinking about it this week, I, I suspect that it's a bit like a sudden nosebleed. You ever had one of those nosebleeds that just seems to come out of nowhere? You know, you, you haven't done anything to cause it, you haven't bumped your nose, you haven't picked your nose, you haven't done anything that might cause the nosebleed, you, you can't track down its origins and it just sort of comes out of nowhere. I knew a guy at uni who was like that. Every time, virtually every time we were together, we'd be sitting around in a group of people at a, at a lecture or a tutorial and it would start. Drip, drip. And take him a while to realise uh, at first and you'd sort of have to point out and slowly virtually all of his shirts had these little red, red sort of drip stains down it. And this went on for months. He used to get so frustrated he'd go around with these wads of tissues in his pockets just in case uh, the nosebleed came. Eventually, after months of this, he got sick of it, as you would. It's a bit like us uh, with our circumstances. You get to the point where you say, oh, I want to take control. And so that's what he did. He headed off to the doctor and he says, look, I'm sick of this. Give me some tablet or something that I need to do that's going to stop all this bleeding. And the doctor said, you know, it's probably not much. It happens from time to time. And uh, he said, we'll do some tests anyway and we'll get this sorted out. So a week or so later, he got the call from the doctor. He said, everything okay? What do I need to take? What's going to fix this? I'm sick of this. It's ridiculous. And the doctor said, no, mate, you're not okay. The bleeding is coming from a brain tumour and I'm afraid there is nothing you can take for it. Sometimes the presenting issue is a symptom of a much bigger problem. And we need to hear this clearly tonight as we look at this passage together. The unease we may feel in life because of circumstances beyond our control is but a symptom of a much bigger problem. You see, every time you feel that lack of control over circumstances, every time you long for things to be more secure than they are, more stable than they are, every time you feel that lack of control, that you long for something to bring that security... Whenever that experience comes, as it does for all of us, the Bible says to us, you need to know that it is not because you're in some run of bad luck that's going to right itself any moment. No, your problem is not that you are fortune's foe, to quote Shakespeare. Your problem is that you have someone else as a foe. You see, life is full of circumstances beyond our control because we have an enemy and he is opposed to you. And if your circumstances make you fear from, t- from time to time, if, if, uh, if, if these things disturb you, then take in what the Bible is saying here. They are but a nosebleed compared to the big problem, compared to the fact that you have an enemy in this world, especially when you see who that enemy is. Have a look at our passage, uh, sentence number 10. Two words that are in bold there, two words that God uses to describe who we are. God's enemies. God's enemies. The Bible declares that the God who made absolutely everything, every planet, every star, every tree, every river, ocean, every taste that you've ever experienced, every fruit, every creature, including you and including me, he made all of it. It declares that that God is utterly in control of everything he made. And unlike us, there is no circumstance nor any creature that is outside his rule. He's the king. And this God who created all things, who controls all things, sustains all things. 
He holds it all together. That you are about to take a breath of air is not a stroke of luck. He controls that. And he actually decides how many you have left. That's his domain. The God who made all, controls all and sustains all is your enemy. And so it shouldn't surprise you if life is troubled. And here's the worst of it. He's not your enemy because of some arbitrary twist of fate. He is our enemy because we have made him our enemy. You see, although he made us and absolutely everything we enjoy, we neither acknowledge him or or give him the slightest thanks. Although he's in control, uh, uh, we declare autonomy, we declare self-rule, I'm in charge. Perhaps not out loud, perhaps not formally, but we live that way. We live with no regard for him, as, as if I own the place, as if I am in control. Although absolutely all the circumstances around me say otherwise. I'm God's enemy because I live as his enemy. And so that is God's assessment of me. Sentence 10, enemy. Or he puts it another way in sentence number 8. He uses a different word, sinners. That's how he describes us. Sinners are a word that Christians use a lot, isn't it? Sin, sinner. But essentially it means the same thing as enemy. Our problem, I suspect, when we hear the word sinner is we hear it so many times as we get used to it and we think it's no big deal, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. When we hear sin, we think of our behaviour flaws, our sort of the fact that we lie sometimes or we're cruel and we don't want to be sometimes or we're selfish or perhaps unfaithful. We hear sinner and we just think of our catalogue of mistakes or our excesses or our indiscretions. The sort of things that we're all guilty of. But the truth is they are the nosebleeds, symptoms of a much bigger problem. You see what God is saying in sentence number eight here. He's not just talking about my behaviour. He's talking about who I am. He's talking about my whole identity. At the very heart of who I am is this, enemy, sinner. Let me tell you a story to try and explain what God is saying here. Uh, A few years ago, when I was still living in Australia, I went camping with a group of friends. A friend of ours had a had a great um, farm out in the country and uh, we were there for about three or four days and uh, the only way to get drinking water is he had a sort of a rain tank uh, next to the little hut that he had and so at the first day we all started drinking out of this rain tank. You work really hard all day and uh, you're drinking huge amounts of this water and the first few times I had the water I thought, this is different sort of water. It tastes very different to what I'm used to but I thought, oh, this must be really fresh country water, you know, the top grade stuff and I've just never tasted it before. That's why it tastes funny. So we drank away without thinking about it too much and day after day goes by and slowly uh, one of us, a bit more bold than me, said, uh, no, there's something wrong, there's something weird about this water. He says, no, 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 it's fine, we've been drinking from it for years. Eventually uh, we convinced the guy who owns the farm to climb up the little ladder on the side of the rain tank and he uh, looks in and it's full of water, everything's fine but there down the bottom of the rain tank is a goat which had been there for obviously some months uh, or part thereof a goat which remained. Now let me tell you, you can drain all the water, you can change cups, you can do whatever you want but as long as there's a goat in the tank, (laughs) it's not worth drinking. 
You could fill it with Ribena. It's not going to do the job. And let me say, you can stop lying. You can be kind to everyone you meet. You can cease to be arrogant. You can be faithful from this day on and there is still a goat in the tank when it comes to you and God. He says you are a sinner. He's not just talking about what you do. He's talking about who you are. It's a disease of the mind, he says, that says, I'm in control. No, you're not, says God. When have you ever been? And it's a disease of the heart that says, I know what's good for me. I know my purpose in life. I know how to be happy. No, you don't, says God. You have moments of it, glimpses of it, but you are nowhere near the good purposes I had in mind for you. There is a goat in the tank says God. And we need to see from our passage our declaration of autonomy, our refusal to come under his control and live our own self-determined lives is not without consequences. God who is our creator and king is also our judge and his response to our declaration of self-rule, do you see it there in sentence number nine? Right near the end of the sentence, the word in bold, wrath, anger, And his anger is not like ours. It's not flippant. It doesn't come and go. It is steady and focused in its opposition to our claim to live without him. And his anger results in his judgment. A judgment that first of all gives us over to the consequences of our choice of self-rule. The sort of consequences we've already thought about living in a world with circumstances beyond our control. Living in a world filled with, if you like, a series of nosebleeds, one after another saying to us something is wrong, warning us of a bigger problem. And his judgement doesn't end there. The very next chapter of the Bible in Romans chapter 6 says there is a payment for our sin, our enemy status. It says the wages of sin is death. Do you see the extent of God's opposition to you? Live a life opposed to God the creator, the sustainer of your very life and sooner or later he will stop sustaining it. The God who gives you each breath you take will say no more. And if you want to see the extent of the problem we have with God as autonomous people, see this. There is a greater fear than even death and that is the judgement that follows it. God's anger is not like ours. It is steady, focused and forever. Romans chapter 5 says to us, you have an enemy and here's the worst of it. There is nothing you can do about it. Sentence number 6. Do you see the word in bold there? One word, one more word that God uses to describe us. Enemy, sinner, and now powerless. There's the extent of my lack of control, this this life that I'm trying to get under control. There's his description of that attempt. Powerless. I reckon that's hard for us to accept. We always like to think that even with a problem as big as our, our one with God, that there's always a way back, that there's something I can do, Some, something we could maybe work out between us. But there's nothing, there's no act, no redressing of wrongs, no apology, no flowers behind the back, no box of chocolates. Nothing in my power can turn this around. 
The Bible says you have an enemy. He is the living God who made you, who rules you and sustains you and he has declared you guilty. He responds to your life with anger and he is not your friend. It's like the news the doctor gave my uni mate. We need to hear it clearly. You are not okay, says God. And we need to see it clearly tonight. If you are seeing it clearly tonight, you also need to see something else just as clearly. Something only God can say into the sort of predicament we are in. It's actually written and said all throughout this passage, if you heard it earlier, read by Beryl, and that is this news. Your enemy loves you. Your enemy loves you. You see it there, sentence number eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now take that in. That is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, think about the people you love most in life. I mean, really love, people you are willing to give yourself for. No doubt there are some friends that fit into that category. No doubt family that you will give yourself for them again and again and again. But it's no doubt a select list. And then think of the person who has caused you or those you love the most hurt, done the most damage, perhaps irreparable damage, damage that you can see no way back from. Do you love them? And God looks on us. The ones who have rejected him, grieved him and anger him. He looks on guilty enemies and he loves them. And the way he demonstrates that love, do you see there, he doesn't just give us a little, he doesn't even give us a lot of his love, he spends the whole bank. He holds nothing back. He gives us his son, his life. He doesn't wait for us to enter peace talks. No, the passage says here, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, when we were still very much his enemies, when the disease of sin still raged within us, Christ dies for us. That's how God treats his enemies. He dies for them. He does it to show you the extent of his love for you. He does it because he knows the circumstances of our lives, of certain death and the coming judgment, are far too powerful for us to overcome. And he does it because he knows only he can save us now. And so in the face of obvious guilt, despite his rightful anger, and from the other side, if you like, of the battlefield, our enemy loves us costs us nothing, but costs him everything, his life. And he does it without blinking because he loves you. He gets out of the bunker, he walks across the battlefield and he stands in front of you as God's rightful judgment comes on him. That's what his love does for you. Just like his anger is not like ours, so his love You know, human love will only take you so far. There are some barriers, some hurdles that cannot get over. But his love takes us exactly where we need to go, where we're meant to be. Let me tell you where we're meant to be as far as God is concerned. We are meant to be where there is no guilt. That's what sentence 9 says. Those who know that Jesus has died for them are justified through his blood that was shed on the cross. No guilt because he stands in my place. Because his blood, not mine, is shed and I walk away justified. It's like the judge walks into the courtroom and uh, ready to deliver his verdict, ready to deliver his sentence on my life. He looks in the dock and instead of me, he finds him there. 
and I'm free to go. Not guilty. Can you believe it? There's more than that. Also where there is no anger. Again, sentence nine. You see it there. Because of Jesus' death, I am saved from God's wrath. See, God rightfully has responded to my life of autonomous self-rule by, with anger. I've declared war. I've set up the bunker on the other side of the field and at just the right time, as I said, he gets out of the bunker, he walks across and he stands in front of me and as his own army comes at him at full pelt, as all the weapons of God's judgement are poured out on him on the cross until absolutely everything has been spent, until it is completely finished, and all the weapons are put down and peace is declared and when it is, I find myself standing next to him totally unscathed, at peace, with my enemy. Can you believe it? But there's more. There is no anger, so I have nothing to fear. There is no guilt, so I am free to go, but there is also now no distance, so I'm free to stay. You see it there in sentence 10. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Reconciled. What a change his love brings. I stand with him on this battlefield, not just innocent, not just at peace, but as his friend, reconciled. Can you believe it? You know, life is full of circumstances that are beyond our control, full of uncertainty and anxiousness. It is just like racing along that motorway. But at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that off-ramp that we've longed for comes. God's love comes. You know what he says to us tonight? He says, take it. Because without it, this will not end well. But with him, with his life given for yours, you'll find at last the one safe place you're meant to be. Safe from fear, safe from guilt, safe from judgement, a friend of God. Can you believe it? That is in fact all you need to do. God says, trust me. Jesus says as he gives his life away for you, hand back control to me. Let my cross deal with the circumstances that are far too powerful for you to deal with. Let my cross reconcile you to God. As we finish, let me say that I don't know whether this has been your experience of being on motorways, but I suspect when I'm a little lost on a motorway and the slipways are coming up, the off-ramps are coming up, I'm never quite sure if this is the right one, if the right one is actually a bit further along. Let me say this is the only one. It has come at just the right time and if you've never taken it, then tonight is just the right time. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. And essentially what this prayer is, is if you've never taken up God's gift of his son's life for yours, of forgiveness, of reconciliation with God, then this is a prayer that you can pray with me. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, there, there may come other opportunities for you in the coming years, other off-ramps if you like, but this is the one to take. Let me encourage you to do that. I'm going to quickly read out the prayer that I'm going to pray and then I'm going to pray it again line by line and I'm going to leave a space in between each line. And if you want to 
make this your prayer tonight, then you can pray it quietly uh, to yourself as well, between you and God. So this is what I'm going to pray. Dear God, I know I am not in control. I'm sorry for living as if I was. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Please forgive me for my sin. Please take me back as a friend. Please take back control. Let's all pray that and I'll leave a pause in between each line. Dear God, I know I am not in control. I'm sorry for living as if I was. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Please forgive me for my sin. Please take me back as a friend. Please take back control. Amen. Let me say, if you have prayed that prayer tonight, that is just amazing news. And uh, it's news that I'd love to hear. Uh, You have come here tonight as an enemy of God and you leave here his friend, friend forever. Uh, That's pretty much the best night uh, anyone could have. And so I'd love to hear about it. And what I'd uh, like actually everyone to do just uh, before we sing our last hymn is on the other side of this white sheet is a response slip. And uh, there's a a, a response, uh, really an option for everybody here, something to fill in. I'd love everyone to do it. There's pencils at the end of the rows and just in those little boxes uh, next to the Bibles in the rows. And so if you grab one of those, uh, it would be great if you could fill it out. Essentially, as I said, there's something uh, for everyone uh, to fill in. The first bit is the best aspect of the meeting today or tonight in this case was. uh, Now, if you can't think of the best aspect, you might think of the worst aspect, uh, whatever it might be, that's fine. Uh, If you want to make some sort of comment about the service, that's uh, a way you can do that. And just below that are four boxes, four ways of indicating uh, that you've been thinking about what we've been looking at tonight and uh, what your response is. Because whenever God speaks to us, uh, I think it demands a response, whatever that might be. And the first box there is really for those who have prayed that prayer along with me, uh, who have joined in the prayer, who have become tonight friends with God. Uh, I'd love to know that. I'd love to encourage you as you start out life as a Christian. And so please uh, tick that box if that's you. And also, if, if, it's, uh, if you're somebody who's recently become a Christian and you've not had the opportunity to really tell anyone about that, uh, then tick that box as well and I'd love uh, to encourage you. Uh, the next box uh, is, I guess, for people who, who might have been thinking about this tonight but want to keep thinking about it. Now, lots of unanswered questions. Uh, we've got a course coming up, Christianity Explored, that starts on February the 10th, which is designed to do just that. Explore what Jesus has done even more and give you lots of chances to ask questions. So if that's you, uh, then please uh, tick that box. Now, the third box is uh, for those who, who may have heard tonight and you thought, I've heard that, uh, but that's not for me. Uh, I'm not interested at this stage. Uh, that's fine. Please tick that box. I'd, I'd love to know that as well. And uh, for many of us here, many of us here are friends with God, not because of anything we've done, but as we've heard tonight, because of trusting what God has done, that if that's you, well then there's a box for you to tick as well. And what would be great, if you do fill this in, if you could put a name and some sort of contact details, either a phone number or an email, so that I can get in touch with you and encourage you, especially if you have become a Christian or you want to think about it uh, some more. Now I'm going to give you a a little bit of time, a minute or so, uh, to fill that in. Uh, There should be pencils, plenty of pencils around and then uh, after that we're going to stand to sing our final hymn.